Welcome to the Resurrection Church Podcast. Resurrection Church exists for the glory of God and the joy of His people. If you're looking for a church in the upstate of South Carolina, please join us 9 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 900 North Main Street in Greer, South Carolina. We pray you'll be blessed by this message. Amen. If y'all can uh, remain standing for just a few more minutes. I'm Andy. I'm one of the elders here at Resurrection Church. Um, if you're joining us for the first time, whether in this room or online, we want to welcome you. Um, can we welcome them, church? So glad you're here. <clears throat> I would. Uh, we've been continuing to study in the Gospel of Luke, and I want to read that the sermon text <clears throat> this morning. We're in chapter 17 of the Gospel of Luke. If you want to turn there, starting at verse 11, should be on the screen. On the way to Jerusalem, he, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Um, my name's Bradley. I, too, want to welcome our guests. Uh, I met a couple of people today that have just moved here from out of town and so we welcome you. Uh, we know that finding a local church is not an easy task. In fact, I talked with a family that um, some of you remember Rick and Carmel Smith had just moved to North Carolina. Uh, I texted with Rick not that long ago, um, and they're, they're just struggling to find a place uh, to, to plant and to root and to be a part of. And so uh, I just want to pause and pray for those of you that are new to the area uh, and in the search to find where God would have you plant and root in a local church, that's a big deal. So let's just pause for a minute and pray. Lord, I thank you for uh, folks moving here from other parts of the country, um, and we welcome our guests this morning. We just pray that you would lead them and guide them by your spirit as they seek your will, as they pray your kingdom come, as they listen for your voice um, and look to plant and root, root in a local church. That's a great thing. It's a necessary thing. And we bless them in that. Whether that's Res Church or another church, we pray that you would lead them to the right place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The kingdom of God is a present reality with a future fulfillment. We, we've talked about this quite a bit here at Res. Uh, that in the modern church, there is a ton of emphasis. You, might, you, might, you wouldn't struggle to find a lot of emphasis on the future fulfillment of the kingdom. 
when Christ returns and the kingdom comes in its fullness, we're not struggling to emphasize that necessarily. We know about that. But here's what I think is grossly underemphasized, and Scripture bears this out, is that the kingdom is also a present reality. Now, we amen that in church because that's what we do, but just stop and think about that for a minute. That's a big deal. I mean, we're talking about the kingdom that will last forever, the kingdom that has no end, the kingdom that all other kingdoms are going to crumble in its wake and only one kingdom will be established. We're talking about God Almighty and his reign. That's a big deal. It's massive. It's huge. And if it is indeed a present reality, we might ask the question, why do so many people not see it? Why do so many miss it? If it's it's really that big and it's really that significant, why are so many seemingly oblivious to it? One of the things I like to gripe about nowadays, I do like to gripe sometimes, is that I I feel like our culture as a whole in large part, people have just become oblivious to their surroundings, right? You you, you know, you've experienced this, right? You're walking up to the door of of a store or a restaurant or something at the same time as another person, and it's almost like they don't even see you. Nobody holds the door anymore, right? And I struggle not to get in my flesh when that happens. But that's a small thing compared to the kingdom of God being a present reality and seemingly people miss it. Jesus looked at a huge crowd that was following him. Back in Luke chapter 12, you might remember this. You can look at it on the screen if you want. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower's coming, and so it happens. And you see a south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. In other words, you can look at the environment, at the atmosphere, and you can tell what's coming in the weather for the most part. Then he says this, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And if you look at that in context, he's talking about the breaking in of the kingdom of God. How is it that you're missing it? Stop and think about what they were seeing. The sick are healed. The blind see, the deaf hear, and even the dead are raised. Demons are cast out, and the kingdom is being proclaimed by both Jesus and his apostles by this point. And Jesus looks at a huge crowd that's following him. Why? Because he's doing stuff. Amazing things. Things that had never been seen before. And huge amounts of people were pressing in to see this Jesus. And he looks at them essentially and says, you're missing it. You missed it. That's scary. In our text, the Pharisees pose a question to Jesus. Verse 20, let's read it again. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. (laughs) If I'm in Jesus' shoes at that point, I'm going, are you kidding me? When will the kingdom come? But look what he says. The kingdom is not coming with signs to be observed, 
nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. That does not make sense. If you look at that, if you pay attention to what he just said, here's the first thing he said. The kingdom is not coming in ways that can be observed. What? What? Let me ask you, when Jesus teaches absolute truth with unique power and authority, is that a breaking in of the kingdom? When the sick are healed, demons are cast out, and the dead are raised, is that a breaking in of the kingdom? And are all those things things that people, at least in the first century around this time, can see, hear, observe? Jesus, what in the world are you talking about when you say that the kingdom is not coming with signs to be observed? It almost sounds nonsensical, doesn't it? That Greek word is interesting. Luke uses it two other times in Luke's gospel. Look at these on the screen. You can turn there if you're fast. Luke chapter 14, verse 1, one Sabbath, when he went to dine at, at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Same word. Watching him carefully. Luke chapter 20, verse 20. So they, talking about the Pharisees and scribes, watched him, same word, and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something that he might say. The word means careful observation, evaluate, diagnose on the basis of a certain criteria. Here's what's so startling. The Pharisees are not lacking in careful observation of this Jesus. Did you see that? They're scrutinizing him at every turn. They're watching everything he does, and they're evaluating it. And keep in mind, these guys know the Old Testament. They know it well. They know it better than we do, better than I do probably had the first five books at least memorized. These guys are not unfamiliar with Yahweh, and they, it's almost like they've got Jesus under a microscope, and they are scrutinizing everything he says, everything he does, and they're looking for ways to trap him and trip him up. But despite their careful observation and their evaluation, this is so startling to me. They're absolutely missing it. In one sense, they should be able to say, look, there it is, the kingdom of God. The sick are healed, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, demons are cast out, the forces of darkness are being pushed back. You would think, wouldn't you, rest church, that they would just go, oh. But they're looking at Jesus and going, hey, when's it coming? I don't know if it was a sincere question or not. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt here. That perhaps they're gen- at least some of them are genuinely asking, when's it coming? You, you, you obviously, there's something going on with you, Jesus. So we want to hear from you. When's the kingdom coming? He's like, you're not going to be able to evaluate it, observe it, diagnose it, with conventional thinking. It's not going to happen. 
But then he says this, but make no mistake, the kingdom is in your midst. It's here, now, present, real. It's tragic, isn't it? Do you see this? Jesus says, it's here, but with your current thinking, you're not going to see it. What a tragedy. Think about when Jesus multiplied the loaves and fish and he fed thousands. Remember that? Thousands, probably upwards of 20,000 people. Bible says five, they only counted the men. They don't count the women and children. So it's probably 20,000 people there. He feeds that massive crowd with five loaves and two fish and just stop and think for a minute about how many in that massive sea of people got nothing more than a full belly and didn't see the breaking in of the kingdom. Think about when Jesus sent his apostles out to city after city after city after city, and he commissioned them, heal the sick, cast out demons, and proclaim the kingdom of God has come upon you. And how many of those cities did they have to shake the dust off their sandals because the people there missed it? And Jesus told them, when you shake the dust off, be sure to tell them, Make no mistake, the kingdom of God is coming near to you. The issue at hand for the Pharisees in the first century and the people that were impressed with Jesus and the issue at hand for us here today is not whether or not the kingdom is breaking in. The issue is not whether or not it's breaking in in multi-form, multi-faceted faceted ways that could be recognized and perceived. The issue at hand is the kingdom is breaking in, and for whatever reason, the Pharisees at least aren't seeing it, despite their careful observation. Hold that big, massive thought. Now we got 10 lepers, right? 10 lepers. I'm kind of working my way backwards through this text. Look at verse 11 again. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered the village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance. That's what they have to do. But they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. There might be some here who aren't familiar with leprosy in biblical times, but if you were pronounced a leper, if you're diagnosed with that disease, you entered into the worst of all possible quarantines. And it did not last a week or two. It was a death sentence, a lifetime of being isolated and ostracized from family and all community, and the only fellowship you had was with other lepers. And if you don't know anything about leprosy, it's a horrible disease, horrible disease that grossly misfigures people. Your life was over. And Luke tells us that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and and he's on what amounts to a major thoroughfare, a highway, that runs between the border of Samaria and Galilee. It was highly trafficked. And it's probably very strategic for these lepers that they're hanging out by this major thoroughfare. 
They have to keep their distance. They have to shout unclean if they see someone coming close to them that may not recognize they're a leper. They have to keep their distance, but perhaps if they hung out by this major highway, some compassionate travelers would leave them food and other supplies. So that's probably why they're hanging out there. And Jesus, with his entourage, comes down the road and they cry out, Lord, Master, even, have mercy on us. My question is, how did they even know him? Right? You should ask questions like this about your Bible. How did they even know who he was? They don't have TV, they don't have internet, they don't have cell phones, and they can't really get near anybody who's healthy and free to roam around society. How did they hear I can't prove it, but I wonder if some compassionate travelers did a little bit more than just leave them some food a time or two. You know, Jesus is doing things that the world, like I said, had never seen before. There's a blaze of miracles in his wake, and word about his ministry is spreading like wildfire throughout the territory. Jesus is known, and perhaps some travelers who had compassion for these 10 guys that are isolated and ostracized and dying, quarantined. And maybe they left them some food by the side of the road. And keeping their distance, they said to them, hey, there's a guy, his name is Jesus. And we've seen it. Blind people see when they meet him. Deaf people hear when they meet him, the lame start to walk. He's even raised the dead. Maybe if you watch for him, he could help you. This is what he looks like. He's, he's traveling with a group of people. Can you imagine the hope they might have started to feel? Could this guy, could he be real? First of all, and second of all, could he end our death sentence? Could he bring us out of isolation? And then one day, one of them nudges another and says, there he is, that's it, that's, that's, that's gotta be him. He looks just like they described him and he's got a, he's got a group of people. What, what was his name, what did they say? Jesus, all right, Lord, Master, they kept their distance, but not their silence. Have mercy on us. And Jesus does something, in my opinion, that's rather odd. Unusual for how he typically does things. But here's what we know about Jesus. He doesn't do anything throwaway. Nothing's flippant. It not only matters what he does, but how he does it. When he sees them, hears them, verse 14... When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. What a mouthful that verse is. What? Wait, 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 what? This is not the first time Jesus has encountered a leper, is it? You remember back in chapter five, there was one leper that came to him, came, broke the law, came towards Jesus 
and said, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I am willing. And he touched him. You don't touch lepers. Not in the first century. He touched him and said, be clean. And he was clean. He was healed. This seems a little different, doesn't it? He doesn't touch them. He doesn't get near them. I don't think it's because he lacks compassion. That's not who our Lord is. So he must be up to something. He's doing something. But he says to them, go. And whatever they've heard about this Jesus, whatever they think they've come to understand, they've at least got enough knowledge and enough confidence that when he says go, they don't seem to question it. They just start going. They obey his word. Underline that in your mind. They heard him and they did what he said to do in the moment. And as they go, can you imagine this? Their fingers that were rotting are suddenly whole. Their toes that have fallen off reform. And all these awful, horrible sores all over their bodies start to vanish. Can you imagine their excitement? This is amazing. They heard his word. They obeyed his word. And Luke says, as they went, they were cleansed. They were physically healed as they went. They experienced a break-in of the kingdom, didn't they? And they benefited from it. I mean, going to show yourself to the priest was the only way as a leper that you could re-enter society. It's the only way. The priest had to declare that either by some marvelous cure or perhaps we misdiagnosed you in the beginning, we now can look at you and see that you're clean and so you can come out of quarantine now. That was the only way they could come back in. So Jesus tells them to do the right thing, but only one. Look at it again, verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. One of them, only one, turns back and does two things. He praises God. That's interesting, isn't it? He praises and glorifies God. Now, he's a Samaritan. He doesn't have a fully developed Trinitarian theology. You with me? Revelation comes incrementally. By this point, there's no way. Samaritans only believed that the first five books of the Old Testament were Scripture. They did not accept the Psalms or the prophets. So as a Samaritan, a foreigner, he's only got five books of the Bible. I don't think that he understands God is three in one. I don't even think he has a grasp of what it might mean for the kingdom of God to be within reach, within your grasp, to come near, to break in. Here's all he knows. God has done something amazing for me. 
and I don't deserve it. How do you know he feels that way? Because he comes and he realizes God has done this through this man. And he falls on his face and he thanks Jesus. Only one. Only one comes back. And Jesus responds this way. Verse 17. Then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed? The other nine were healed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Like I said, Jesus, it not only matters what he does, how he does it is important too. He, he, I don't think he's simply trying to give a little lesson on gratitude here. As if this Samaritan was the only one among the ten who had the common decency and manners to just turn around and say thank you. I think he's teaching. This is a laboratory. And Jesus is teaching his disciples something that they're going to have to learn. They gotta, they've got to learn this, and we've got to learn this. If we're going to participate with Jesus in his kingdom work, Christians, when the kingdom breaks in, when it comes near, in many ways, people in general can benefit from that People might get healed who don't believe when believers pray. Healing in relationships might come even for unbelievers when they give attention to Paul's words in Ephesians about the help of the Spirit in relationships and what it means to speak the truth in love. Maybe they can learn principles from God's Word and apply them and experience benefit. Are you with me? People might even in their desperation cry out and say, God, I need you to provide for me. And guess what? He might do it. Even for an unbeliever, Jesus said in Matthew 5, he causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall for the just and the unjust. It's possible to experience the breaking in of the kingdom, and benefit from it and miss it. This is not unpacked for us in Luke 17, but I cannot help but think about Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus in John 3. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, risks his reputation and his status to come to Jesus under cover of night. Why? Because he says, Jesus, we know you're a man sent from God because nobody could do the stuff you're doing if he weren't. Has Nicodemus seen something? Has, has he carefully observed this Jesus and evaluated there's something going on here? Certainly he has. But this is what Jesus says to him. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus, a miracle has to take place in order for you to not just simply observe that something's going on and evaluate it 
with your conventional thinking and your current criteria and try to diagnose it. That's not going to work. It's not going to work. But make no mistake, the kingdom is in your midst. And he doesn't help us with that in Luke 17, but in John 3, he does when he says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom. Only one comes back. Ten are healed, and only one comes back. And Jesus says this to him in verse 19. And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Did you catch that? Ten were cleansed, physically healed. One was made well. And that word well is sozo. It's the Greek word. It means saved. Now, don't, don't pass, push the gas pedal to the floor right there. I'm hesitant to emphatically conclude that this one leper was born again right here, but I'm inclined to think that he might have been because something deeper has obviously happened in him. And Jesus is pointing that out. Ten lepers were healed, cleansed, physically made well. Their ailment was abated. They probably went on to the priest. The priest looked at him and said, yep, you're cleansed. We're not sure how that happened, but you're good. You can go back to a normal life. And probably they did. But only one came back to Jesus, and Jesus said, literally, your faith has saved you. Minimally, he experienced something much more holistic than fingers being made whole and toes regrowing. You with me? Something more holistic happened for this one leper that would cause Jesus to say, your faith has made you well. It's the same phrase that Jesus gives to the woman who had the issue of blood in Luke chapter 8. Remember that? She snuck up in the crowd, grabbed the edge of his garment. She was healed. He calls for her. And Mark's gospel says she told him the whole story. And Jairus is dancing from one foot to the other because his daughter's dying. And this woman tells Jesus her whole story, and he says, your faith has saved you. Now, faith, we know. We talked about this last week. It has this element of simplicity and mystery to it, right? It's, on the one hand, it's childlike, and on the other hand, it's a miracle. We can't produce it. Paul says, faith is the gift of God so that nobody can boast about it. If you have faith, you know what? You should thank God you have faith, not you. Your faith, your confidence, your trust, your belief has saved you. Ten were healed. One, in some sense or another, was saved. And we know we only have to look just a little bit further in Scripture to realize the Spirit of the living God has done something in this one leper. It's deeper and richer than just a physical healing. In 20 plus years of pastoral ministry, 
I couldn't tell you how many times I've been summoned to pray with unbelievers who are in crisis. It might be because of a wife who is a believer or a husband who is a believer that I know maybe is a part of this church. Maybe a friend that I know who says, hey, I've got a friend and he or she doesn't believe. They've been resistant. I've, I've drug them to church a few times and they've reluctantly come for, just for my sake. They might be willing to bow their head when we say the blessing, but they've just kept all of this at arm's length and I just want you to know that up front, but they're sick or there's something going on. There's a major crisis and they're crumbling under the weight of their current circumstances. And I asked them if, it would be okay if I invited my pastor to come pray. And they said, yes. You know, I, I've never been invited in that kind of setting to pray with an unbeliever and them say, no, don't you dare pray for me. I think every time these unbelievers who have kept all the things of God at arm's length welcomed me with gratitude and tears even. Why? Because they're at the end of themselves. And what are they going to do? Pray? Certainly. And I've watched case after case of unbelievers soaking up the prayers of the saints, even start to faithfully come to church because they're in crisis. And then the Lord has mercy. Lord, Master, have mercy on us. Okay, I will. Ten are cleansed. I've watched him have mercy on these unbelievers because he causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And when they come out of the crisis, maybe there's a short season of gratitude and thanks but I've seen it so many times, too many times, and it breaks my heart when that person just simply goes back to life as it was before, keeping the things of God at arm's length. Why? Is it because they're just ungrateful wretches? Maybe. Maybe not. You ever met a really, really nice unbeliever? Good people, right? If you're not a believer here today, we, no one's here to assassinate your character. If you're watching online, I've met some really nice people who just simply look at the gospel and go, no, thank you. Don't want that. There's an eternally critical difference between the person who cries, Lord, help me, and the one who cries, Lord, I'm yours. Eternally critical dif difference. And maybe, maybe you're like the nine. You, you, you're not anti-Christianity. You're not, you're not wanting to say, that's just a bunch of hogwash. Like you've, perhaps you've experienced the benefit of being in and around God's people. 
Nothing else. You've tasted the love that is shared among the people of God's kingdom that we know from Scripture is a work of the Spirit among us. Our fellowship is as supernatural as anything else. I might need to do a series on that because y'all, y'all didn't, I thought it was easy, amen. That's true. <laughs> Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've tasted that. Maybe you've shown appreciation for that. Maybe you've seen benefit because your, your spouse brings your kids to church faithfully and you've seen your kids grow into becoming better human beings by learning about the things of God. And so you go, yeah, this is good. I just don't, it's good for them and I'm just gonna kind of keep my distance. But maybe you're hearing the gospel with fresh ears this morning, the good news. That this is not, we don't worship a God who merely changes our circumstances. We worship a God whose kingdom and rule has come near. It's in our midst. His reign has come, is coming, and it will come in its fullness. And you have the opportunity to respond appropriately. And can I tell you, joy and excitement over circumstantial improvement is not the appropriate response. Not in and of itself. The appropriate response is to turn, repent. Come to this Jesus, fall to your knees, bow your face before him, and give praise to God. That's the only thing that matters. So I'm going to pray. And if that's you, even if you're watching online, you might drop us a quick line, an email, so that we can reach back out to you. But if that's you and you're here in the room, Andy's going to be right here, one of our elders who read our scripture this morning. He's going to be right here, and he would love to talk with you and pray with you. Now, candidly, we're about to have a really awkward transition because we've got some church business we need to talk about real quick after I pray, but hear me. Don't miss the moment. Don't miss the moment. Don't Don't just carefully observe and diagnose what you've heard today and think you can just, I'll just sort all that out later. No. If you perceive the kingdom of God has come near through this Jesus, turn, bow your knee, bring all your questions, bring all your doubts. We'll journey with you. We'll pray with you through those things. The most critical issue is, Jesus, not just help me, I'm yours. Holy Spirit, I know Jesus told us you would convict the world of sin. That you would 
open hearts and minds to be receptive, to, to, to see and to perceive through this miracle we call new birth, the breaking in of the kingdom of God. And so I ask for those hearts in which you are working, not, not the organ that pumps blood, but the, the inmost part of us, our essence as people, as you work in men and women alike, children alike, to draw them to this Jesus, we just say yes and amen, and let us be a community of faith that not only sees people come to faith, but nurtures them in that faith. And so I pray that you would give the same kind of courage that I, I th- all 10 lepers had, but that one had in particular. They all cried out, but one came back and said, Jesus, thank you. Praise be to God. That took something else. And so whatever that something else is, I pray that you would give it to those you're drawing to yourself. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Can we say amen together? Amen. Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message from Resurrection Church. Please visit resfaith.com. That's R-E-Z-Faith.com, where you can find more sermon archives, learn more about our church, and find a place to give to our ministry. We'd be glad to hear from you. Drop us an email at connect at resfaith.com.